Can I just get comfortable here for a minute? I'm, I'm a preacher by nature, but I'm most comfortable right now in life leading worship. So I just want to say, I give you every part of me. Each song I sing, each breath I breathe. Every sermon I preach, every step that I make, it's for your glory, Lord. Each song that I sing, each breath I breathe. Every decision I make, God, is for your kingdom and for your glory. Every sermon I preach is for your kingdom and for your glory, mighty Jesus. Every word that I say should reflect you, God. Every action that I take should reflect you, God, for your king, for your kingdom, for your glory, mighty Jesus. Lord, not my will but yours be done in this place today, God. Not my words but your words be said, Jesus. I thank you for it, God, and I praise you for it, Jesus. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. God is great and greatly to be praised. Amen. I love that song. Every part of me. You know, every part means that it's the good, it's the bad. It's the stuff that you see. It's the stuff that your friends see. It's the stuff that your friends don't see that mom and daddy don't know about. Every single part. Reckless surrender, wholly devoted to one God, to one true living God. We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter number 3 today. Um, I, I have some, a fun fact here for life. Uh, I am preaching today out of Glenn Oliver Henderson. Some of you may have seen me carry this particular Bible cover around. Uh, it's got his name there on the back, Glenn Oliver Henderson. He is my great grandfather, um, my grandfather's dad. That makes him my great-grandfather. Um, and I, he died in 1983. I never got to, met, uh, to meet Geo Henderson. I'm not sure that this Bible has been preached out of since 1983. Uh, he died in May, May 21st, I think, something like that. Um, just randomly of a heart attack, driving down the road, my, uh, my great-uncle was there with him. Um, he did a lot of work in Michigan, uh, so I'm, I'm really excited uh, to be able to preach out of this Bible. <laughs> it is slightly used, uh, but that's the way the Word of God should be, right? Wrong. It should be wholly used. It should be, it should be used every single day, not slightly used, but it should, be, it should have teardrops and markings and all different kinds of things. Uh, you know, I, how many of you get new Bibles? Okay, three. Come on, how many of you get new Bibles? It's not a trick question. Uh, that first mark in the new Bible is always so, like, yeah, it's so scary, and it's so permanent, because it's like I have this, I was gifted a Bible not too long ago, and it's one of the ultra slimline uh, with the dual ribbons and the calfskin cover, and you open it up, and it's like, it just smells beautiful. And I, I opened it up, and I started reading out of it, and the scripture jumped out at me, and I took my pen out, and I was like, <clears throat> This is going to happen. So I took out my bookmark, so I made sure I wrote a real straight line, and I was like, wrote the line in there. But let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, now that we've had time to get there. Verse number 1, this know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, 
covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away, from such turn away. Let's pray specifically for this message that it would take root in our heart. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather into your presence, for the presence of God that we already feel in this place, Jesus, the worship that's filled this place since the very beginning of service, God, from the very first note. But Lord, we ask today that your word would speak to our hearts, God. We know that your word is anointed and it's forever settled in heaven. Right now, we ask that you would do more than forever settle your word in heaven, but you would forever settle your word in our hearts, God. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word, not just hearers only, but doers of your word. Let the preached word take root and grow and become part of who we are, ingrained into our very being, God. I thank you for it, Jesus. I praise you for it. Lord, I can't do anything of of this nature without your help, so I pray that you touch me today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. It was, I guess, five or six years ago now that some friends and I were walking through the canals of Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, a number of people have been down there, uh, always for good intention, I'm sure. Uh, I do see the, the, well, I don't go down to the, cloud, to the canals very much anymore, but I have seen the sparks happen at the canals, you know. The people, it seems like you can go to the canals, and because it's two point something miles long, that you go all the way to the end, and you think that the rest of IBC is not going to go all the way to the end. So as you're walking right there around the little circle, you can kind of slip your hand, guys, you kind of slip your hand into the girl's hand, and you walk right there, hand in hand, around the little bridge. And then you start coming back, you get a little bit nervous that somebody might be coming, so you let go kind of thing. Uh, People see that, just so you know. Uh, (laughs) But it was on one of these escapades. We weren't necessarily trying to find someone doing that, but we were just walking down the canals, and I noticed this gondola, and, and I was like, wow, there are gondolas in the canals of Indianapolis. And I thought, that is super cool. I'm going to, like, take my wife on a, on a nice ride, you know, down the gondola canals. And, and uh, so I, I thought about it, and I was like, man, l- let me look into this. And I, so I looked into it, and it's like 50 bucks for a half hour or something like that. And I was like, man, I'm going to go get a steak at Ruth's Chris for an hour's worth of entertainment rather than ride down a a gondola in the canal of Indianapolis. And I read this um, on their website, the Old World Gondoliers website. That's the website that is the company in Indianapolis. It says, come experience a journey into the past. Sit back and let your imagination take you to the canals of Venice, where you'll be serenaded by your gondolier as you are transported into the romance of old Italy. Your voyage with the One World Gondoliers will set sail when your mind is open and your spirit free to explore the wonders of the magic of the old world. Experience the beauty, the mystique, the charm of downtown Indianapolis. (laughs) With spectacular canal views, come make history with the One World Gondoliers. Now, this obviously is not the canals of Indianapolis, is it? Now, I like the canals. Does anybody like the canals? It's a good run. It's a good walk. It's a good time with your family. But this culture of Venice really is the culture that gives birth to the gondola. Fun fact, thank you, Snapple. All gondolas in 
Venice are painted black unless they're carrying someone important. So if you're ever in Venice and you see a gondola, other than the color black, you know that some sort of dignitary is in that, uh, in that canal. But the more I thought about, let's hit the next one. The more I thought about uh, the gondolas in the canals and how excited I was about this, this discovery that I had made, the less intrigued I became. Because you see, in an effort to revitalize the canals of Indianapolis, the city of Indianapolis created a false experience that copied a culture and offered no real experience of what the culture of Venice is like. I realized, wow, this is just a big fake. It's a big copycat of experience because it's where it's in Venice that the gondolas are born. It's in that culture where the gondolas are born. In an effort to revitalize the city of Indianapolis, created a false experience. I'm afraid that far too many men have tried in an effort to revitalize their dying churches, created a false experience of Christianity. An experience of Christianity that doesn't offer hope, that doesn't offer salvation, that doesn't offer a, a, a life everlasting with Christ. It doesn't offer any of those things. All it offers are gondolas in the canals of Indianapolis. So that's what I want to talk to you a little bit today about, is gondolas in the canals of Indianapolis. So to first know what we should be doing, let's, let's take a look at what we shouldn't be doing. What is a fake or copied church looks like. It's not a new phenomenon by any stretch. It dates back to the Old Testament. In 2 Kings uh, chapter number 16, verses 10 through 14, let's take a look there. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest to the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to the workmanship thereof. And Uriah built, the priest built the altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz, came from Damascus. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar and offered thereon. Verse 13, and he burnt his offering and his meat offering and poured out his drink and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. And when he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar of the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. So here we have our very first recount of, well, not very first, but uh, uh, that we're going to look at, our very first recount that we're going to look at. We have an altar here that is put off to the side. We have an altar that God prescribed. Now, the altar is, is a place of sacrifice. We've talked about that a little bit in this building before. The altar is a place of sacrifice. The altar is an opportunity for you to be reconciled to God. That's what the altar is. It's like seven and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide by four and a half feet tall. Sits really tall. It can fit an animal in there to burn it. That's what the altar is for. And a fake church or a gondola in the canal of Indianapolis looks like something other than what God has prescribed for your life. 
A fake church is a representation. These, these two altars here are just representations, okay? And work with me here. It's a semblance. It, it's, it, this is what the world says is cool and what the world says is all right and what the world says you sh- how you should live your life and how you should have a job and how you should have your hopes and your dreams and your ambitions. But this over here is what God says. And this over here is what is okay with God. And this over here is what is okay with God in your life. I'm going to tell you that oftentimes in your heart and your dreams and in your ambitions, they're not going to add up with God's. Just just listen to the voice of experience here. It's not going to add up with God 100% of the time. It's not going to happen. So you might as well learn to take up your cross daily and follow after Christ. Because when you can get yourself to that altar that God has prescribed, it's much different than bringing over here a fashion or a semblance or a fake altar in your life and in your church, and in your home. When you replace the brazen altar with something fashioned after the world's thought processes, you have a fake church. You have a fake altar. When you think that false doctrine can stand in your pulpits and give a talk in effort of tolerance or in in effort of whatever you think needs to happen in your community, maybe even as an outreach, I'm going to tell you false doctrine should not come across the pulpit without an answer for truth. False doctrine should have no place in our thought processes. And when we come, we're, we're human, we're prone to error, I understand that. When you come to a place of realization, wow, this is false doctrine. Repent. Don't just say, oh God, forgive me. That's not the, that's not the essence of repenting. The essence of repenting, Corbett is in first grade, he's on fall break right now, and he wanted to come to work today, and I said, bud, you're not coming to work today. And, but he is... Uh, he's learning. He, he learned in Sunday school this past, or in kids' church, I'm sorry, this past uh, Sunday, what repentance was. And I said, what is repentance? You know, he didn't mention one thing about prayer. He didn't mention one thing about asking for forgiveness. He said, repenting is when you're doing something and you turn from your ways. That's the truth. Repent. Because when you turn from your ways, that is going to employ you. I have to ask God for forgiveness because these wrong thought processes have been in my head. So I have to ask God to forgive me for wrong thoughts and wrong attitudes and wrong words and wrong actions and wrong deeds. I have to do that because you've turned from your ways. So when you find false doctrine in your life, repent. Be quick to repentance. It's not a a big thing to say, Wow, I was wrong. How many of you have ever been wrong? Oh, good. We're all in agreement here. Everyone in the room has been wrong. So find that place and say, God, I used to think that the constructs of this world and the systems of this world were going to make me okay. And, were, and maybe I thought that they were cooler. It might very well may be that the ways of this world seem cooler than the ways of God. That's just the way it, it is. There are times, the Bible is very explicit when it says that sin is pleasurable for a season. You can enjoy yourself and not be saved. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven, obviously. It means that you need to get yourself to a place of an altar and, 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 and forsake that. Push it back and say, i got to turn from that. That's not in my notes, it's free. We don't have time to allow unchristlike spirit systems to take root in our heart. Folks, the last days are coming. The last days are upon us. Perilous times are here. Are we in the book? uh, 2 Timothy, are we in the book? Men are lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. 
We are in the last days. We have traitors, heady, high-minded people. We have people without natural affection. We have truce breakers. We have all of these things played out in our society today. Folks, we don't have time to pity-pat around church and to come in here and log our card and swipe in and scan to chapel and say, all right, I'm done for the day, and not lift our hands and not lift our hearts and not lift our lives to the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he's worthy and he has something to impart into every one of your lives so that you can leave this place and so that you can change your world. The second thing after that I want to talk about after separating the altars and, and, and redefining, that's really what it is, is a redefinition of the altar. That's what King Ahaz did. The battle, it just hit me, so I'm going to hit it one more time. The battle of today is for definitions. The battle of today is for definitions. So you walk up to a guy on the street and you say, do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. Define, do you know Jesus? How do you know Jesus? Do you know him in the fullness of his glory and the resurrection power? Or do you know that Jesus was an actual figure in history? Or do you know of Jesus because you heard about him in Sunday school and you no longer believe? Define it. I believe in holiness and separation. Define it. Do you believe that you should be holy in thought and in thought process and in dress and in, spe- and in speaking and in actions? Or do you, define, that, do you de- uh, define holiness as something that was of yesterday? Define it. Men, do you think that you should look like men? Women, do you think that you should look like women? Define holiness. The battle is for definitions. The, the next thing I want to talk about is low priests in high places. 1 Kings 13, 33. A fake church will put a low priest in a high place. And I'm not talking about stature or uh, achievement or anything like that. 1 Kings 13, After this, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him and became one of the, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Low priests in high places whosoever would, he consecrated them. I'm reminded of another whosoever, and it's whosoever will let him come and drink of the water of life, right? Anybody can be saved. Let somebody walk through here that's of ill repute, and they stink, and they're pungent, and they're dirty, and they they haven't said a nice word to a human being in seven years. Let them come in here Feel the power of God. Repent of their sins. God fill them with the Holy Ghost. They'll be baptized in Jesus' name. God will clean them up. God will make it. Anybody can be saved. But we cannot, as the apostolic church of today and as the apostolic church of tomorrow, you cannot allow low people to become high priests. Now, I'm not saying that after forgiveness and after a a time of proving that that God can't use someone in a particular capacity. That's not what I'm an advocate of. I'm an advocate of you allowing that same individual to come up here and to stand because he once was a preacher of the truth. Because he once walked with us. Because he has a Ph.D. Because he is an expert in his field. And allow him, because of those credentials, to stand and preach false doctrine in your pulpit. We cannot allow low people to become high priests of the Most High God. It simply cannot happen.
We have to be holy in the way that we act. We have to be holy in the way that we dress, in the way that we speak. We can't redefine what all these things are. How many of you are particularly smart? Everyone should raise your hand. <laughs> if, if nothing, let me define it for you, okay? If nothing else, how many of you in comparison to the birds outside are particularly smart? Okay. All right, so we've defined it. Now we've got everyone on the same page. I'm going to tell you that there are a lot of people that because of their intelligence think that they are smarter than God. Some of you in this room think you're smarter than God. My question is this. If we're smarter than God, why do we still fail midterms? Why do we still miss questions on tests? Why do we still have to go through the same situation played over and over and over? Because we've not learned the lesson. If we're so smart, why do we have to do these things? We don't have time to be smarter than God in these last days. Perilous times are at our fingertips. We have to have such a hunger and a, a brokenness for the pain and brokenness. A hunger to heal that brokenness. A hunger to give them. I mean, how many of you, and, and I love class interaction if you, haven't told, if you haven't been able to tell yet. How many of you in this place, when seeing someone, a friend or uh, something like that, hey, let's, let's go to the beggars. I'm not a huge fan of panhandling personally. When I see someone sitting on the side of the road, I think they're probably scamming the system. That's my initial reaction. When I get up to them, I can kind of judge, uh, and, and you can judge too. Y'all are all smart people. We've established that fact. You can determine, you can discern whether or not those people are truly homeless or whether or not they're trying to work the system. You can tell that. When you see someone that's truly homeless, now that I've qualified, how many of you would drive by and not say, I'm going to spend $1 to get that man a Happy Meal, to get that man some chicken nuggets, to get that man a drink, or that woman a drink? I, or at least you hurt for them. Why, in perilous times, would we allow somebody to come and walk by us and not offer them the salvation of God? When their spirit cries out to your spirit, and they look in your eyes, and you look in their eyes, why on earth would we not do something? 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 32 and 33. This one gets a little more real. Verse 32, so they fear the Lord and made un unto themselves of the lowest people, high priest, or low priest in high places. So here we have low priests in high places again, which sacrificed for them in the house of God of high places, right? Verse 33. In this first little part, just before the comma is what I want to focus on. So they feared the Lord and served their own gods. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. I'm going to tell you that as a real church, as a gondola in Venice, not in the canals of Indianapolis, as a real church, we have to love God and not love stuff. We have to love God and not love stuff. These people feared the Lord, and they served their own gods. It's a bad, 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 bad place that we can be as apostolics when we fear the Lord and we love our stuff. When we're so worried about having a tailored suit that we can't let God tailor our hearts 
Houston, we have a problem. When we're so worried about whether or not we're in first place or our team is in first place that we can't put God in first place, Houston, we have a problem. I'm not saying that these things are wrong. I am saying that you can't love God and love your stuff. Paul was, or Saul, the king of Israel, was found among the stuff. It's all the clutter. All the everyday things of this life that suck our time. As a real church, we've got to push back on all of the, the things that, we're, that are pushed toward us. It's an input-output kind of relationship. We've got to say, no, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm not going to spend seven hours a day on Instagram liking my friend's photos. No, I'm not going to spend 12 hours a day watching YouTube videos. You cannot love God and love stuff and be an effective Christian in perilous times. That's the long and short of it. You can clap. You cannot clap. That's the truth. We cannot stand for our love of stuff and for God at the same time. I was in... Uh, book trip. I was on book trip, I should say, and we went to the restaurant. What is the name of that restaurant? Olga's. No, the other one where you order by phone. I truly cannot remember. Um, but anyways, there's a. If you've not been on book trip, I suggest that you go on book trip, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Go hang out with the students and the staff and your peers, and and uh, get some good deals on books, uh, as it were. And so there's this restaurant that you go to, and you sit down in the back. And you pick up the phone and you make your order for your food. And it goes to the kitchen and they, they bring it out. And I was at this restaurant and a, uh, the, the waiter came up to me and he says, um, can I get your order? And I said, yes, I'll have Dr. Pepper. That's a simple enough request, right? I'll have Dr. Pepper. And he says, This is, this is what I wanted, Dr. Pepper, okay? Let me put it right here just for a second. And he says, how about Cherry Coke? I said, Dr. Pepper, and this is all in my head. I'm trying, he knows that who we are. Dr. Pepper, Cherry Coke. Dr. Pepper, they don't even have the same letters, very many of them in there. They don't even sound the same. And I, so I verbally said to him, I said, that's not even the same thing. And he said, they taste just alike. So, I have a little bit of an illustration here. Thad, will you come here? Cherry cola. Will you pour cherry cola in this cup right here? Brother, Brother Gallon, you going to help me? You like cherry cola? Dr. Pepper. Woo, that one got close. Did anyone here go? There it goes. Dr. Pepper, Cherry Coke. They're the same thing, aren't they? They're about as much the same thing as someone pretending to be at church and speaking in tongues as someone who is truly under the influence of the Holy Ghost. They're about the same as that. Now, to the naked eye, I look at these two things, 
And if that is messing with me, and I turn my back, he can switch them on me. But when I get close and examine them, I smell it. Did you switch them? Hang on, I'll be able to tell you if you switched them or not. He didn't switch them. They smell similar. I'll be honest, they smell similar. Dr. Pepper and Cherry Coke smell similar to my nose. But when I take these two Cokes, because that's what they are, is Cokes. Everything that is carbonated is called a Coke. (laughs) When I take these two Cokes and I press that cup to my lip, I can taste that that is not Dr. Pepper. There are those 23 flavors of goodness bursting in rapture inside of my mouth. It's just not the same. It's just not. And I told the guy, I said, I'll have just a regular Coca-Cola. I'm going to tell you, Thad, you can have those two liters. I walked in, and he was really excited about them. And does, does anyone want Cherry Coke? Here, William Soderland, come on down. Soderland. I'm going to finish this because I don't want to spill on the new chapel carpet, so just bear with me a minute. I'm going to finish this drink. Oh, you want, you want this one right here? Yeah, drink this one. I don't want to spill on the drink. You know, I had an idea. That's a bad idea because if I chug warm Dr. Pepper, <laughs> it might not turn out pretty. But you, you have two very real things. They are very real. Cherry cola is a real drink. It's just not the same as Dr. Pepper. So the experience spiritually may be very similar. But if it does not line up with the prescribed word of God, then it is something other than a real church. I was in a prayer meeting someplace in the United States of America, and I looked up. I felt, I discerned that something was not right. And I looked up, and I saw a particular individual speaking in tongues, and my spirit said, that's fake. It's happened one time in my life. Hasn't happened since. Never had happened before. And I I said, that is a false tongue. That's not prescribed of God. I'm not sure how I knew that or why I knew that, or, or even, I don't know how to explain it other than my spirit right in here said, you better stay away from that. That's a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. From such, turn away. Don't have fellowship with them. Don't allow them to sit down at your coffee shop when you start talking about the Bible and about holiness. Because I'm going to tell you, in the last days, perilous times shall come, and men shall be lovers of them own self, and those false doctrines will creep in. Sheep in wolves' clothing, wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're going to find out who the real church is. So let's look at what the real church would look like. I mentioned at the beginning that I'm preaching out of uh, G.O. Henderson's, Glenn Oliver Henderson's Bible. I'm going to tell you that he preached Acts 2.38. He preached holiness and separation. I can go through these, these notes, um, and I can, I can understand 
what he's saying. Uh, there are a lot of really, really cool notes in here. His own handwritten notes, uh, I, sermons that he preached in my possession. And that's, that's something really cool. Even if it wasn't uh, just because he was my grandfather, it's cool on a number of different levels. I, I put on Instagram a picture. You cannot see it here. But this is a picture of the annual conference of the United Pentecostal Church at this auditorium in St. Louis, Missouri, September 15th through 22nd, 1946. If you do your history, this is the first conference after the merger that formed the United Pentecostal Church International. This is absolutely awesome. And I'm, so, I'm going through this Bible, and I'm like, wow. And then it hits. It's like, he preaches, he preached, he taught, he orchestrated his services the exact same way with the exact same motives that I do today so that God is glorified and so that this Bible is made to, to, made to be known as true. I'm going to tell you that a true church is a bibliocentric church. It's a church that at the very foundation of who they are and what they believe has the Bible. It has the Word of God. It says that there is one Lord, that there is one faith, and that there is one baptism. It says that Acts 2.38 is the plan of salvation. It says that women should look like women and men should look like men, and that children should obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. The Bible is the soul of everything in our lives. That's a true church. A false church says, well, I'm, I'm not so sure about the Bible, and, and what really is the Bible, and how do we know that it's true? I've talked to them. You've talked to them. What we need to know is that the Bible is the truth. Archaeologically proven, it's the truth. Historically proven, it's the truth. Experientially proven, it's the truth for salvation, for hope of mankind, for better living in Christ. The Bible is the truth. That's what we need to know. That's what a real church looks like. It says, oh, I'm doing this, but the Bible says to do that. I better change. I better repent. I better not offer my sacrifice at the false altars. I don't care if the king said, oh, yeah, this, is the, this is the good altar from Damascus, and it's beautiful, and it looks great. I don't care. My sacrifice place, my place of sacrifice, what I do might look completely different than what this world says is okay. But this Bible Ain't going to lie to you. The Bible is the, the Bible gives birth to the culture of Christians. The Bible gives birth to, the, to what we believe. It, it is the source. Just like Venice, out of Venice came like this really cool little boat that, that these people are trying to mock in Indianapolis. Out of the culture of the Bible comes everything we need. And when we start adding to or taking away or uh, lifting out or replacing in or, or supplementing, or that's when error and false doctrine creeps in. I was, I was witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> that's fun to say. Witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, he thought he was witnessing to me, and I thought I was witnessing to him. And we were on the job. I was a fire watch, which the fire watches don't really do much except watch for fires. 
uh, working in the chemical plants. That's what I did, and I got paid to do it, and it was awesome because he was the foreman, and he came up, and we were talking about uh, God and the Bible, and, and he would reference his books, and, and I'd say, yeah, but what does the Bible say about that, Herman? Herman was his name, and uh, I didn't just call him Herman, but I'm going to just start calling some of you Herman. Hey, Herman. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But I said, what does the Bible say about that? I, I forced him back to the Bible every single time. And every single time he came back, he'd say, I know, what does the Bible say? And we believed that the Bible, both, we had that in common. We believed that the Bible was the foundation of how we should live our lives. That's a good thing. It's a good place to be. So we were in a safety meeting because one wrong uh, turn or one wrong, one stray spark. So really my job was important. One stray spark or one stray little fire could cause a plant-wide explosion uh, that would kill several people. Um, so I had a very important job. I was very happy. Uh, and I was witnessing to this guy while doing this very important job. And uh, he, he said, uh, at the safety meeting in the morning, he said, what if, what if something happens and it's not your fault? He was making the point of watching your neighbor's back, which this is good too. Watch your neighbor's back. Why should I watch my neighbor's back? They're, because their error may result in your detriment, which is true. And that's the point he was making. And he said, how many of you are ready to die today? I sheepishly raised my hand. I was newly married, and I didn't necessarily want to die that day, but I was ready to die that day. And he said, what do you mean you're ready to die that day, Chris, or today, Chris? And I said, man, I, I'm just, I just trust God. And he said, yeah, because you know where you're going. And he caught himself, and he said, well, you think you're going. And I said, no, Herman, you had it right. I know where I'm going. I know what my promise is. All I have to do is believe on this book. All I have to do is put my trust in an everlasting God who created the heavens, the earth, but he didn't just do that. He made a way of salvation for me, for you, for whosoever will. So I put my trust in God, and a real church will put their trust in God and in the Bible. The second thing that a real church should have is integrity. Integrity. In your social life at IBC, have integrity. In your relationships at IBC, have integrity. In your words at IBC, who you talk about. I understand that this is a family. I often tell people on tours, I say, this is really just one big family. People come in, and we have class together, and we sit in chapel together, and we sit in the cafeteria together, and all the girls live over here, and all the guys live over there. It's really just one humongous family. Now, in family, sometimes word gets around. I understand that. I, I, I get that. Sometimes it is harmless. Sometimes it's not. So in your social life, having said all of that, in your social life at IBC, have integrity. You all are adults. You can fill in the blanks and color in the lines. Have integrity. Don't talk about your neighbor just because you think it's funny. I understand there's good humor and there is uh, having fun, and I'll be the first to jump in on fun stuff. But don't, hey, Chad, Amen. But don't do it to the detriment of somebody else's heart and spirit. I can't tell you the number of times in my good fun and jest I've had to go back and say, hey, I want you to know that I, I truly was kidding and meant you no harm. 
I'm not trying. I'm not out for anybody. I'm, you know, I, I, Matt, Claudia, where are you at? There you are. Front row. Front row, Matt. I like front row, Matt. The very first instance that Matt Claudio, and I, Matt Claudio and I had, it was a little bit tense, would you say? It was a little bit tense. He, he tried to make the point that all I do is call people out, and I was countering and saying, no, that's not all I do. Bro, just hang out for more than a day, and you'll figure that out. And he said, see, you called me out. I was like, no, I didn't, man. So, but have, have integrity. In your spiritual walk with God at IBC, have integrity. If you can't put in 10 minutes, and it's been said I don't know how many times here, but it's still true. If you can't put in 10 minutes of day in, in, in prayer, what makes you think that God's going to give you 10 minutes at Calvary Tabernacle or 10 minutes on an MSA or 10 minutes in chapel to preach? If you don't have integrity in your personal walk, what in the world makes you think that you're going to be able to have integrity when you stand up in front of your peers? Because... We're going to know you. Your peers are going to know you. Staff is going to know you by your labors. We can tell if you're praying or not. We've been there. We've done that. I used to wonder, how on earth does my mom know when I've been praying and when I haven't been praying? Because I was mean. I was unkind. I was not tenderhearted, loving one another, forgiving one another. I was not showing myself friendly. It's not rocket science. A lot of times, <laughs> your face tells whether or not you've been praying. There's just something about being in the presence of God and pushing everything else away and saying, I'm going to spend this time, whether it's 10 minutes, 5 minutes, an hour a day, in prayer and in supplication, so that God can put into me. If you can't consecrate yourself in the pew, why in the world is God going to allow you a pulpit? He's not going to. He's not going to. Uh, thirdly, we need, to be, we need to be an experiential church. Our church needs to have experience. When people walk through the doors, I, I think, personally, that they should go. I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. When our worship is so intense to such an intense God, I don't have a problem with someone from the outside coming into my culture and saying, wow, this is kind of strange. It is strange. But it is okay. It doesn't make sense. But nor does God robing himself so that he could come and save dirty, wretched, broken, lost, cursing sinners. That doesn't make sense. But yet, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That doesn't make sense to me. So sometimes my praise may not make sense. And if someone from outside of my culture, someone from not in the culture of Venice, who doesn't understand why gondolas happen just the way they do, they don't understand why worship happens just the way we do, why we speak in tongues, why we jump, why we clap, why we do this. When someone walks in, I'm okay with them not understanding everything. Give them one experience where the power of God hits them so hard that they can't know what to do with themselves other than to just shake and jump. Give them one experience and suddenly that inexplicable fact becomes reality in their hearts and in their lives and they can say, wow, I get it. When I think about how good God is, I can't help but jump and shout. When I think about where I used to be, where I could be, where I should be, I can't help but give, give God praise. So our church should be an experienced church. It should have conversion. It should have worship. It should have preaching. It should have praise. 
In Acts 22, Paul recounts his conversion experience at Mars Hill. And he says, hey, I, <laughs> hey guys, um, it's not, not at Mars Hill, pardon. It is uh, in front of the Roman rulers and, they're in the, and the priest, and they're saying, hey, they're accusing him of, of preaching false doctrine. And he says, uh, hey, guys, I, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but I used to persecute these guys that I'm with today. I had the letters that you have. I had those letters to persecute, to bind, to bring into prison. I had those letters, guys. But I'm going to tell you about one moment that changed my life. And he recounts on his way to Damascus where the light hits him and knocks him off of the, the animal on which he's riding. And he says, Lord, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. We have to create an atmosphere. In order to be a true church, to have the true culture of Venice, as it were, in our churches, to have that fully in effect in our, in our lives, we have to create atmospheres where God can work and move. And the Bible says that he dwells in the midst of his praises. So when I come into church, all I have to do is clap my hands and lift my voice and in sincerity give God praise and let him move into the place. Because and here's the thing. We're smart, but we're not smarter than God. Remember, we failed our midterms. So all we have to do is lift up our hands and give God praise and let his presence start moving in our presence. And suddenly the people have that experience. So in an effort to revitalize churches of today, man has created a false experience that copies the culture of Christ and offers no real experience of what Christianity is. Men have concocted some form of neo-charismatic evangelical Christianity where it's not about truth and it's not about God and it's not about the saving power of Christ and living holy. Men have concocted that and it's not what really needs to happen in our churches today. One story as we close. My dad, as I've uh, alluded to numerous times, maybe not here today, but numerous times, he is a rig welder by trade, which means that he goes out and he, uh, I used to call him a metal fusiologist because he fuses metal together and it sounds a lot cooler than a welder. Uh, so <laughs> so as, when I was trying to be cool in school, they would say, uh, you know, what's your dad do? Well, my dad is an operator for Lindell Sitco. And I'd say, my dad is a metal fusiologist. And they'd kind of look at me. Of course, the teachers got it, but the students all thought, wow, this dad's a metal fusiologist. <laughs> really, he was just a welder. He just, he just used electricity to fuse two pieces of metal together, which when you say it like that, sounds pretty cool. Um, but regardless, he, he would sometimes have to work out of town. And uh, we were at Morgan City, Louisiana. And uh, how many of you have ever been to Morgan City, Louisiana? How many of you know where Morgan City, Louisiana is at? Okay, one hand, cool. Couple hands. He was on a job out of town, and uh, he didn't like to take them because my dad was a family man, still is to this day a family man. Uh, if he had his way, he would say, Chris, pack your bags. You're coming to move to Green River, Wyoming, so that all the family can be together. Telena, Kenton, come on. Leave South Bend. Y'all are all coming to South Bend, or to Green River, Wyoming, and we're all going to be right there. He's a family man. I love that about my dad. And when I knew that dad had to go out of town, I knew that times were desperate because dad didn't like to go out of town. But dad made sure that we had a church to go to when we were out of town. See, he'd been on this job in Morgan City, Louisiana for a while. And he said, uh, you know, 
Lena, I want you to go. That's my mom. Lena, I want you to go to this church and uh, and on Sunday. We were there for Christmas break, and, and he said, I want you to try this church out. And it said right there on I-10, Interstate 10, running through Houston and all the way. I mean, it, east to west coast, I-10. Right there off that highway was a church, the Pentecostals of whatever, apostolic and Pentecostal and experience, whatever. It was a big church, huge parking lot, sprawling campus, beautiful building. And I walked into the church, and uh, I was excited because I had gone to a big church. Uh, and, you know, it, I'm sad to say that there were often times that as a person, as a young person, as a, as a teenager, I would say, oh, you, you go to a home mission church. And I would feel empathy for them because they didn't have a big church like I did. And I loved my big church. I loved the, the size, the, the worship. I loved everything about it. So we went to this church, and uh, I walked in, and it was the friendliest greeting crew I have ever, to this day, ever seen in my life, both in the church and out of the church. The friendliest greeting crew. They had it down. Now, we're talking like this is somewhere in the 1998-99 region of time. And they said, uh, you know, oh, hi, welcome to, you know, whatever the name of the church was. We're going to, oh, you've got kids. Excellent. We love kids. Come on in. Hey, they, they've got kids. You're going to go to this class and this class, and, and, and you're going to go to this class. And they directed my whole family. There's, there's four of us, three brothers and a sister and my mom. They directed us all into our respective Sunday school classes. And I thought, wow, this is cool. So I went into this, the uh, sanctuary or the, the class there, and I sat down, and I said, uh, wow, room, nice, nice building. I noticed some holiness discrepancies, but I, you know, hey, there was this really cute girl. I was not dating Leah at the time. Uh, it was, we'll leave that one alone. That's another sermon for another day. I was not dating Leah at the time, and there was this cute girl, and I was like, man, I think I could, I'd, I'd like to call her. This was before we had text messaging, um, and I was like, man, I'll get her number after Sunday school. So, as fate would have it, the Sunday school teacher went long. Busted my plans of getting that girl's number. I was really sad. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just sit with the youth and, uh, you know, maybe I can, like, again, before text messaging, I'll write a note and pass it down and, you know, maybe, maybe she would give me her number that way. And then I thought, nah, I better not. I better sit with mom. So we got to the church in the sanctuary, and there was an orchestra there. And I was like, whoa. I'd never been to a church with an orchestra. Now I go to a church with an orchestra. And I was like, this is awesome. They played through praise and worship. And, and uh, mom took the songbook out. And it wasn't songs of hymns or whatever. Praise him, H-Y-M-N. It wasn't, it wasn't the one that we have. She opened it up. And there, right there on the first page in the cover was a dedication to the Trinity. One Lord and three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. She said, hey, boys, did you see the songbook? I took the songbook out, and I opened it, and I saw that. She said, what should we do? Now, remember those friendly greeters at the beginning of the story? Those friendly greeters set us in the very middle of that sanctuary. It was a big sanctuary. I'm talking like it was, it was about the size of Calvary, but differently shaped. So it was deeper than Calvary was. Calvary was wider. It was deeper. And so they sat us right smack in the middle of that sanctuary. 
And she said, what are we going to do? And I looked at her, and I said, Mom, are you kidding? I went to Brother Glass's church. I knew the oneness of the Godhead, and I knew to run from anything that wasn't the truth of the oneness of the Godhead. So I said, Mom, we got to go. Now, that took a lot for me to say, because remember that girl? I still wanted to get her number. I don't anymore, thankfully. But I wanted her number, and I was like, man, we got to, I got to do this. But I, I got up, and I walked out of that church. All five of us filed right out in the middle of the, of the song and the offering or whatever it was, whatever part of the service we were at, and we walked out. And we went to this little bitty church, probably the size of this middle section right here. Couldn't have fit more than... 50 people. Movie theater seats. The only thing I remember about that church, I don't know whose church it was. I don't know anything about it. The one thing I remember about that church is when I walked into the church, it was altar call. And if ever in my life I felt the power of God, I don't know what the man preached. I wasn't there. But I know that when I walked into that place, with a horse trough, I'd never seen a horse trough for a baptismal before. With a horse trough on my left in the foyer and the water waders hanging up so that the pastor could put them on and get down and baptize people, I walked into that place, into that building that didn't necessarily look exactly how I wanted church to look, but it felt like church should feel. It felt like a church with integrity, with the Bible as the center, with that experience and I lifted my hands right there and I said, God, never, ever let me forget this feeling. That's the prayer I prayed. It was so vivid, so etched into my mind that some 15 years later, I can still raise my hands and say, God, I remember that day. I remember the power and the presence and the fullness of God that just enveloped me in that place. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because I had tasted cherry Coke before I got to the Dr. Pepper. Some of you may have only tasted Dr. Pepper. Some of you may have been born and raised on an apostolic pew, sleeping underneath with bobby pins flying. And the reason kids sleep underneath the pews is so that the bobby pins didn't hit them. I know I did it. But I've only tasted Dr. Pepper. And I'm going to tell you, if I were to allow someone to take just a little bit of cherry Coke, and pour it into my Dr. Pepper, I wouldn't notice. And a little bit more, and a little bit more, till pretty soon I wouldn't even be able to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. It is our job. It is our responsibility as the apostolic church of today and of tomorrow to not be settled with gondolas in some copycat culture of canals. It's our job to take people out. People are tired of fake experiences. They can have a fake experience watching the Colts game. They can have a fake experience when your team world wins the World Series. You can have a fake experience by getting 175 likes on your Instagram. But when you push all of that away, what do you got? You better be able to walk to an altar that God has prescribed and said, Lord, take my sacrifice on his terms, on his conditions. Say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. 
I don't know where every one of you are at right now, but at these altars, you can come if you want. You can pray where you're at. Don't come down here and say, Lord, give me this, this feeling and these thoughts. Don't, don't do that and walk away back to your sin, back to your fake altars, back to your, your, canal in the, or your gondola in the canals of Indianapolis. Repent from your ways so that you can take people to Venice, so that you can show them the beauty, so that you can give them the real experience of what God has done in your life. Sometimes that's all it takes. What has God done in your life? That's all it takes to show. That's all it takes to say, I don't know much, but I know that God did this for me. That's what Paul said. Paul said, not my will, but yours be done. I'm blind. I'll do whatever I need to do in order to get my sight again. So what is your experience? Where is your altar? And I'm not talking about these fake construct altars of Christianity, the neo-charismatic evangelicals. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that place where you got down and you consecrated your heart and your life. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that right now.